1: Anytime Fitness is for real people with real fitness goals. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us aren't training for marathons or half marathons or even half-half marathons. Only time most of us are running at all is if we're trying to make a connecting flight. Wouldn't have been late if we didn't stop to buy a headphone dongle. Point is, you gotta be ready. You do not want to deal with rebooking. Anytime Fitness, where real people help you make real progress. Join today and get a plan for training, nutrition, and recovery.
4: Even today, um, people get very wrought up about her characters because we feel we know of them.
5: That was Paula Byrne discussing Jane Austen.
6: To me as a historian, I really felt that I was watching the Lincoln that I knew from his writings
5: And that was Adam Smith, reviewing the new Lincoln film. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine – which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents and on subscription. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. Currently, our Google Play and Kindle Fire editions are only available in the UK, but we hope to roll them out to other countries soon. Look out for details of all of this on our website, historyextra.com. This month sees the 200th anniversary of the publication of Jane Austen's best love work, Pride and Prejudice. Our section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, caught up with Paula Byrne, author of A New Biography on Austen, to find out more about the life and loves of the great novelist, and to discover whether there was more to Austen than the shy, genteel country girl that we're all familiar with.
0: Paul, the traditional view of Jane Austen is one of a rather shy, genteel spinster who wrote mainly for the enjoyment of her own family. How far would you agree with this?
4: Well, you see, I really don't agree with that traditional view that Jane Austen was this shy, demure spinster writing for her own pleasure and for the pleasure of her immediate family, um, because all the evidence that we have um, from the letters suggests that she took her her reputation very seriously and the most important thing for Jane Austen was that she became a professional woman writer, earning a living from her own pen not being dependent on the largesse of her brothers Um, so it was always really important to her but it became more important for her to become a professional writer Um, when she actually started making some money out of her writing and you get this real sense of excitement when she's starting to put the figures together and, and she's writing to her brothers and saying I earned this amount of money out of my writing um so for me I've never really bought the view of that was put out really by, by one of the first family biographies um of her not wanting to be perceived as any sort of public professional writer um but just somebody who made her family very happy by her her, her writing work so that, you know, that that family view I'm afraid um is just wrong
0: what were the sorts of forces around Jane that helped shape her writing?
4: Well, she did come from, Jane came from a family who valued literature, poetry, reading aloud to one another, a family that valued wit, a family that really loved the spoken word. And her, her brothers were very literary. Her eldest brother, James, was a poet. Um, and her her brother, her favourite brother, Henry, Um, was also a a very good writer and they both started a literary magazine when they were both up at Oxford called The Loiterer. And uh, there's no doubt that the brothers were a huge influence on Jane Austen. Um, the, the family, they put on plays when they were um, in the family home at Steventon. They put on plays. As I said, they read aloud. So her mother was was a known poet and, and she used to write little skits and little limericks. Um, her father was very literary. He had, we know he had at least 500 novels, uh, books, not novels, books in his library. So she came from this family were the spoken word, the written word was highly valued. And from a very young age, she was encouraged by her brothers and her father um, to become... It seems to me they, did, they really did recognise her, her, her talents and they were really supportive. So the forces that shaped her were very much first and foremost her family. Um, but I also argue in the book that there were other forces that shaped her. So there were mentors, female literary mentors, two in particular. Uh, one was her cousin Eliza and the other was her great friend Anne Lefroy, who was also a published poet. And these two Strong, literary, cultivated, sophisticated women, um, also encouraged Jane Austen's writing. So there were there were lots of people shaping her, influencing her, encouraging her, her, her taste. Um, so, so really, it was um, she was very lucky. She was very fortunate to have. People who really, particularly in that time, the Georgian era, when novel writing was considered quite inferior as a a genre. So I think she was really lucky that she had this huge sort of um, support network, really, from her family and friends. And what about
0: the environment around her?
4: Well, indeed. I mean, we we forget sometimes, don't we, because of this view of Jane Austen as the the spinster at Chawton, we actually forget that she was living through one of the most incredible historical periods. She lived through the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, most of her adult life was spent in the background of war. She barely knew a time when England wasn't at war. And not only that, but there were other things. I mean, there was a female emancipation was really important and she was very aware of Um, female politics. So we know that she knew the works of Mary Wollstonecraft and there were other feminists like Mary Hayes, Mary Robinson, who were putting out incredibly interesting political tracts, saying things like women should be allowed to go to university. Um, Women should be given a proper education, not just accomplishments like drawing and a little bit of French and a scattering of this that and the other, but women should be taught mathematics and the sciences and the Latin and, you know, they should be given a proper education. Um, and those, those forces were, were really, really very important to her. Uh, she was living at a time when there was a huge explosion in print culture. So there were newspapers that she had access to. Newspapers were often shared and uh, from family and friends. And uh, we know that she read newspapers, um, so there were pamphlets, there were cartoons. There was a real sense of the, the modern world opening out. Um, and there were circulating libraries where one could read the newspapers and where you one could get the latest novel. So she was living in a really exciting period. So any idea of her not being engaged with that is just ridiculous. I mean, it, it, she absolutely was. Very aware of the, the the turbulent times that she she was living in. I mean, one of the people I mentioned before, her great mentor uh, friend, Mrs. Lefroy, was a very um, keen admirer of Edward Jenner and and the inoculation for smallpox, and she inoculated um, hundreds of people in Jane Austen's parish. So it's it was a very exciting. Uh, world to be in. And Jane Austen was very engaged in that. I mean, she also, she had, she knew many people who had plantations in the Indies. And this was a time when the whole debate about the slave trade was fiercely, fiercely topical. Um, and we know that Jane Austen was very interested in the slave trade and Thomas Clarkson, who was a great abolitionist, who she loved and admired. Um, so all of these things that we we forget that she was really involved in these political debates and the topics that were being talked about. So my book was really wanting to open up those those other worlds, those distant places like the West and the East Indies. She had brothers in the Navy. She had a brother in the militia in the Oxfordshire militias. Um, so she was very, very aware of her world. And my book was really trying to open up that world for for the people who don't always realise what a sort of exciting, colourful time she was living in.
0: I mean, the family moved to Bath in 1801. Um, Do you agree with some historians who say that this heralded a decline in her literary productivity?
4: I don't agree with that view at all. So many myths seem to be created about Jane Austen. And one of them, as well as the sort of shy retiring spinster, is that she had a fallow period when she moved to Bath. And it's a rather romantic reading because it's saying she loved the countryside so much that when she went to live in the city, she felt insecure. She was unhappy. So she stopped writing. And there is absolutely no evidence of that. Um, and in fact, she she managed when she was living in Bath to sell Her first novel, which later became Northanger Abbey, at the time it was called Susan. And she, in 1803, she sold this novel, and she was absolutely delighted. Now, what happened was, the the, the publisher sat on the novel and did nothing with it. Didn't publish it. Paid her ten pounds for the copyright. And she wrote to him after a while and said, "Look, you know, I haven't seen my novel. What's going on? You know, do you need another copy? I'll, I'll write you out another copy if you want." And at that point, he says, um, no, I'm not going to publish it. And you, unless you give me the £10, um, I'm going to keep the novel. And what that suggests to me, I mean, just imagine he would stuck to his word and he and he had published her in 1803. Then she would have immediately have given him Sense and Sensibility, mm-hmm. then, then Pride and Prejudice. And the whole story would have been very different. Now, obviously, her confidence was knocked because that book wasn't published. But she didn't stop writing. She rewrote Pride and Prejudice, which began life as a novel called First Impressions. She rewrote Sense and Sensibility, which began life as Eleanor and Marianne. She wrote a really racy novel called Lady Susan uh, about this very uh, sort of cougar who, who you know seduces young men. It's a really racy um, novel, um, but she doesn't publish that. So, And she's constantly honing and revising. And for all we know, probably sending out Novels to other publishers, and and probably getting knockbacks. I mean, there's so many gaps in our knowledge. We, we we don't have many letters from the time she was living in Bath. We only have four or five letters from that whole sort of five six year period. So, but that doesn't just because there are no letters doesn't mean that she wasn't actively trying to become published. So, I I again, I don't I don't buy that that reading. Although of course, once she was settled at Shorten Cottage, and she had the peace and the freedom. Um, to write. That obviously made life easier. But a a person like Jane Austen, who never stops scribbling, it's it's evident from a child. Once she's got a quill in her hand, she just writes and writes and writes. And I think you just can't stop someone like that. So I just, I'm sure um, she, she was writing.
0: Her career could have taken a completely different turn, really.
4: Even in the academic community, there's just, they, again, they, they buy the theory of uh, she was deeply unhappy, so therefore she stopped writing, um, which I don't agree with. And I, I just, you know, I like to envisage alternative scenarios. So I like to say, I envisage, yes, he does publish it and it's a great hit. What does she do? Of course she sends off a the novels and as she said the story would have been different and sadly we might have had many more novels because I'm sure she had a lot more novels inside her we know she uh, she was writing one up to the time of her death so yes I think there would have been a very had he kept his word um the publisher um uh, it, then it would have been a very different tale and what would her life of bath been like at that time well again I again have a different take um but I think she rather enjoyed living in Bath. And again, we, we, there's this myth oh, she hated it. sugar. And she, it's, it's absolutely true. She said she was happy to leave. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean she was unhappy um, when she was living there, because she did love the theatre. And she loved pleasure gardens. She loved dancing. Um, she loved the assembly rooms. There was so much going on in Bath. And, from the, 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 admittedly, we have a few, only a few letters. But the letters we do have show her going to the pleasure gardens, watching the fireworks and the illuminations, going to balls, going to dances. And we know that she. Her favourite actor uh, was a man called uh, Robert um, Elliston. And um, she he was the great star of the theatre at Royal Bath. Um, and she loved him and she was really upset when he moved to Drury Lane. You know, sort of Jane in the city, she rather had a good time. And um, we know even once she moved away from Bath, she visited London a lot and went to the London theatres. So again, I think she was a much more cultivated, sophisticated woman than we have hitherto sort of um, imagined
0: I mean, I mean, just four years after they moved to Bath, um, James' father died. What impact do you think that had on her and the family?
4: Oh, huge impact, um, not least because they had nowhere to go. I mean, they had to immediately move into less expensive accommodation. Um, she also adored her father and he he encouraged her writing. He bought her her first desk, her laptop, which I call it her laptop. It's <laughs> a portable writing desk. Um, and he, he bought her and this beautiful notebook and she wrote her early tales in it. He he clearly loved and supported her and she adored him. Um, so I think it had a huge impact um when, when when he left and these sort of this trio of women, her, her mother and her sister, um, were then at the behest of her her brothers. The brothers then arranged that they would give family and allowance the girls as they call them an allowance um and there are letters with the, bro- the brothers where well, we'll each of us will give 50 pounds and someone else will give this and then we'll look after them and I don't think that could have been easy for her to be so dependent on on her brothers so I think it was a huge upheaval um, and no, no doubt you know once her father had died they, they they then decided that they would want to live somewhere else and at that point Frank offered a home in Southampton. So. Her father's death heralded a very sort of, um, if you like, a sort of a period, a sort of wandering years. Isn't quite the right word, but sort of, um, she, you know, they, they went off to live in Southampton, and then they lived somewhere else, and and then finally in eighteen oh nine, they were offered a, a place at Chawton. But it was a bit of a. They became sort of sort of wandering. I, I feel rather sorry for them. They were not at all settled, um, so it must have been an insecure time for her. But the family were there for her. And Frank gave her a home and she often visited the other brothers, particularly the brother who was adopted into a rich family. So there was huge support. Your new book explores Jane's life through
0: everyday objects. Why did you choose to set the book out in this way?
4: Well, I was really bored of the womb to tomb uh, method of biography. I feel it's Sort of dead in dead dead in the water really that 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 method. Um, my previous book about Evelyn Waugh was a partial life. It was it, it viewed the life of Evelyn Waugh through the eyes of this family that he fell in love with. So it was a story of a friendship, um, and I I really liked writing the biography in that way. It was it felt very liberating and mm. it, it felt it wasn't it wasn't dull. And I, I think the problem with conventional chronological narrative is you sometimes miss the really important things you sort of you can't see the wood for the trees um, you're telling it in, in in that conventional way so i ne- i just didn't want to do that i wanted to do it thematically um, because i felt that that would throw up interesting shapes and patterns and insights um, and then quite late on i thought of the idea of constructing each chapter around a real life object um i i've always been interested in small things in Jane Austen and their great significance such as um, the the topaz cross in Mansfield Park and the symbolism of that and um, there are little moments in the novel where very small objects can the conveyors of really strong emotion so I've always been interested in that so it, it sort of made perfect sense to structure each chapter around um, an object um, so for instance one of the chapters which is about the military and the importance of the, of the, the revolutionary and Napoleonic wars is called the cocked hat. And I found this wonderful hat that it was the hat that Henry Austin would have worn it um, when he was in the Oxford militia. So I, I, I begin the chapter with a description of the object and then I move into its importance in the life. And then I move into an, a, a reading of the novels. Um, so each chapter follows that, that structure and I found it, interesting liberating Um, and as I say just it just threw up some really interesting um interpretations and emphases that I hadn't quite seen before so I was really pleased with the way that that worked. And in
0: 2011 you said that you thought you discovered a previously unknown portrait of Jane Austen um can you tell us a little bit about that drawing and what you think that can reveal about Jane?
4: Well I the reason why um, I really love th- th- this drawing um, is that it shows to me, whether it's hair or not is another matter. I think it is. Um, but what it shows is that somebody very early on, because it's clearly, um, it, we know that it, it, it was drawn in the early 19th century. Um, there's no, no doubt about that. So clearly somebody very early on Wanted to to portray Jane Austen as a writer, and I think that is of huge significance because the family drawing um, that they commissioned um, for um, after her death was a very sort of particularly manipulated image. Um, She's wearing a sort of Victorian style mop cap and a sort of frilly blouse, and um, she she she's been sort of airbrushed to to look pretty. Uh, And there's there's absolutely no sense of her as a writer. And what I love about the Miss Jane Austen portrait that I discovered was that this is a woman who is clearly a writer. She's sitting at a little round table. There are two pens on the table. She's actually in the act of writing a line of prose. Um, she's, she's, she's looking and she's thinking. You can see her. She's sort of thinking there's inspiration. You know, She's sort of waiting for the muse to come down. Um, so it seems to me that either, even if it's not her, how interesting that somebody wanted to portray her as the thing that she most wanted to be, a respected woman writer earning her own crossed by her pen.
0: we we'll probably never know whether it is her or not, I suppose.
4: I'm not sure we will. I mean, you, you never know. You never know And sort of, you know, little piece of evidence that will link it all. And um, mm. it, it, the portrait is actually at Chaution House Museum now. And um, it's rather wonderful because we've, there's a book, it, it, it's beautifully displayed, and there's a book that visitors can write as to whether they think it's her or not. <laughs>
0: Um, And this year is the 200th anniversary of the publishing of probably one of her best known novels, Pride and Prejudice. Why do you think her novels are still so loved throughout the world?
4: I do think that there's something in it for everyone. I mean, they're they're very, very funny for a start. And I like funny writers and I think lots of people do like funny writers. Um, She's a brilliant stylist. She just writes really beautiful sentences But I think at the time that she published it, and even now, it's her characters that people get really caught up in. And Jane Austen, she she collected people's opinions of her novels. And it's really interesting to look at these opinions because it all centers on the characters. So you have her brother saying, oh, Fanny Price, I can't stand her. She's absolutely awful. Much prefer Elizabeth Bennet. And then somebody else saying, oh, I adored Mrs. Norris. You know, she's awful. Isn't she wonderful? Um, And even today, um, people get very wrought up about her characters because we feel we know them. And at the time, people said it's it's probable fiction. These are people you feel could be in your drawing room. And I think that has just endured. I think that you still feel there's such a, a wonderful knowledge of human nature, um, a great wisdom and great wit. Um, and I just think those sorts of things ultimately will endure because it, it's it's such quality and it's timeless and it's universal and it's love and it's, it's uh, experience. And so I, I just, I can't see a time when we won't want to read Jane Austen.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
5: That was Paula Byrne on Jane Austen. Paula's latest book, The Real Jane Austen, A Life in Small Things, is published now by Harper Press. Paula also discusses eight places related to Jane Austen in our January issue, which is still on sale. And you can get hold of that in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. And now we have a short advert. Do you have a box of precious old photos that you want to preserve? Learn how to create a digital album to share with your friends and family with scanning and editing your old photos, an online course for beginners from Love to Learn. You learn step by step, entirely at your own pace, how to scan and repair your photos and how to put them together in albums for sharing. So head now to www.lovetolearn.co.uk for a free trial. Already shortlisted for 12 Oscars, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln opens this week in the UK. The film, which stars Daniel Day-Lewis in the title role, explores the US President's efforts to push through the abolition of slavery as the Civil War draws to a close. Historian Adam Smith of UCL managed to catch an early preview of the film, and I spoke to him not long afterwards to find out how an expert on the period felt about Spielberg's latest epic. I began by asking him simply whether he'd enjoyed the film.
6: I thought it was an absolutely phenomenal film. I really did. I mean, I've spent... You know, 15 years of my life or so, um, on and off, reading Abraham Lincoln's letters, reading his speeches, um, reading and working and writing on the Civil War era. And I, I thought that what made this film so phenomenal was uh, but Daniel day lewiss performance is as good as all the critics have said it was. I mean, not only is it a brilliant piece of acting, but to me as a historian, I really felt that I was watching the Lincoln that I knew from his writings. You know, an enigmatic character with... Sort of watchful eyes, a self confidence, but an unassuming manner. He had an unexpectedly sharp wit at times, sort of generosity of spirit that you think of when you think of Lincoln, the deep sadness, his bone tiredness, his coldness in the middle of this January winter in Washington. I thought it was a brilliant performance and I was, I was mesmerized actually by the film, which is not to say, of course, that I don't have some criticisms. I mean, you know, usually historians go to um, sort of epic historical films intending to nitpick and to um, sneer at historical inaccuracies. And I, I mean, I, I don't, I have no intention of sneering. I can nitpick. Um, there are certainly some important criticisms I would level at the film, but as an experience, just watching a piece of history in front of me, I thought it was tremendous.
5: Did you get the impression that a lot of historical research had gone into the making of the film?
6: Absolutely. I mean, they have, they have consulted with several Civil War historians. But there were some details, I think, that were a little bit wrong. Um, I think a small thing that slightly bothered me, actually, was that Lincoln swore several times. He said, God damn. Which I think everybody around him certainly would have said, but I don't think it, I don't think Lincoln would have done actually. He was a very proper person in that way. He used he used to tell, as was clear in the film, actually he used to tell bawdy stories. Um, but I don't think he would have um, cursed in quite the way he did in the film. But most of the time, those kinds of details were extraordinarily impressively observed. So in terms of the the feel of Washington in this winter time in early 1865 as the wars coming into a close, I thought it was tremendous. I suppose there are, I mean, to go back to give you another answer to your, um, question, I suppose there are two levels on which you can answer the question about historical accuracy, aren't you? You can talk about, did they get the details of the costumes, right? Did they get the feel and the lighting and the language, right? Or you can talk about whether they presented the big historical problems in a way that I felt was real. Um, by and large, with a few exceptions, I thought that they did get the um, details right. Um, I felt that the feel of it, the, the language, the sound, the, the look of it was exactly as I would have imagined Washington in January 1865 to be. And by and large, um, with some caveats, the, the big historical questions presented by the film were also, I think, fundamentally true.
5: Although this film has been labelled biopic by some and it's called Lincoln, it doesn't cover his entire life. It actually focuses on just a specific period. Do you think that that works well in this context?
6: I think it's the only way of doing it, really. I'm, I'm glad it isn't an attempt to, at a biopic of Lincoln's entire life from uh, the beginning to, an e- to the end. That would be too much to encompass. And it's a very well-chosen few weeks um, it's the first it's January and early February eighteen sixty five. That's the period that the film covers. And what was going on then was that Lincoln had been re elected the previous November. The war, which begun in April eighteen sixty one, is clearly coming to an end. And slavery is coming to an end as well. Not So much through anything that Lincoln has done or that Congress has done, but through the actions of slaves themselves, running away from their plantations, running away to the Union Army, uh, as they did from the beginning of the war. So slavery is crumbling. The Confederacy is crumbling. But Lincoln uh, and the Republican Party have a genuine uh, dilemma uh, in the beginning of 1865. That is that the basis on which emancipation has been conducted is through war powers. The Emancipation Proclamation of the 1st of January 1863 was issued as a war power. If the war came to an end without uh, an amendment to the Constitution firmly, forever, finally uh, abolishing slavery in the United States, the status especially of those African-Americans who remained in practice uh, enslaved in spite of the Emancipation Proclamation, would be at the very least deeply unclear. So Lincoln pleaded with Congress, this is all historically true, in December 1864, for them to pass the 13th Amendment to the Constitution abolishing slavery, which Congress had rejected the previous summer. That was the first stage of the ratification of, a, of, a, of an amendment. It had already passed the Senate. It had to pass the House with a two-thirds majority, and then it would be sent to the states, three-quarters of whom had to ratify it in order for it uh, to become part of the Constitution, which eventually happened in December 1865. So, the film covers the weeks leading up to this vote in the House of Representatives Lincoln desperately wanted the House to pass uh, this amendment. It's true that Lincoln did put a lot of pressure on Congress to pass this amendment before the war came to an end. And that's what the film is about. So on one level, it feels like a 19th century version of the West Wing. It's about um, the president and the White House and the the secretary of state using all the – the black arts of politics, bribery, um, persuasion, um, flattery in order to scare up the votes needed in Congress uh, to get this measure passed. That's the straightforward plot uh, of the movie, and it's sometimes it's darkly comic, and sometimes it's quite um, amusing and engaging and uh, and exciting. It's a kind of political thriller on that level. But of course, what's at stake here, in a larger sense, to use a kind of Lincolnian phrase, the film is about much, something much bigger than that, which is about what was the American Civil War fundamentally about? Was it about the nation, the union, the restoration of national authority, or was it about A new freedom—the bringing of freedom to four million or so enslaved um, people. Of course, it was about both, and it's the relationship between those two things: how a war to restore the Union also became a war that freed the slaves. That's, in a way, that's the basic issue of the American Civil War. And by focusing on these few weeks, as Steven Spielberg does in this movie, uh, he's able to get at that larger picture
5: would you say that Lincoln's own personal role here was more important or pivotal than it was two years earlier with the Emancipation Proclamation? Well, it's always
6: difficult to know uh, how much credit to give Lincoln. This film is written from a perspective of deep sympathy um, for Lincoln. And from the perspective, which I think is very flattering to him, which he certainly would have liked himself, I think, that he ended up, being the man at the center of a world historical moment where he had to make a clear moral choice and he, and he gave the right kind of moral leadership. And I think that Lincoln's role in the ending of slavery in the American Civil War is – is is impossible to uh, is impossible to deny he took the initiative at certain key moments in issuing the emancipation proclamation the preliminary one in September 62 and then again here um, after his re-election in November 1864 taking the initiative along with supporters uh republicans in congress of course uh, in pushing through this constitutional amendment that's not to say that these things Wouldn't have happened with a different president in the White House. And it certainly mustn't obscure the larger truth, which is that the reason why slavery came to an end in the United States was fundamentally not about Lincoln or any other politician or any other White people, for that matter, it was because slaves themselves seized the opportunity of the war uh, to run away to union lines. Slavery itself was crumbling within the confederacy within the south um, by the time this constitutional amendment was passed on the first of February eighteen sixty five you know it was slaves themselves fundamentally who took this issue into their own hands um, and I mean, this is this is an old historical chestnut. Was it the slaves who freed themselves, or was it Lincoln who freed the slaves? I mean, in reality, of course, it's um, it's always uh, a little bit of both. Lincoln was acting in a historical moment, just as the slaves were acting in a historical moment. And this film focuses on Lincoln; it doesn't focus on the slaves themselves. Um, the, the the wider story of Sherman's march through uh, South Carolina, which was happening at the same time as all this was taking, all these these machinations are taking place in smoke-filled rooms in Washington. Uh, Sherman's army was marching through South South Carolina. Um, uh, Hundreds of thousands of slaves were running away um, uh, from their plantations and joining Sherman's army, um, burning down um, buildings in some cases, um, uh, looting their master's stores. There was a social revolution taking place on the ground as military and were unfolding. And you don't get a real sense of that from this movie, because this movie isn't about that, really. This movie is about Lincoln and his choices and the choices of those people close around him. And I think the the movie should be judged on those terms. That's the basis on which it sets itself up. And on that basis, I think it's um, a phenomenal film. It's a partial view of the ending of slavery. Of course, it's it's the view of the White House and the, and the president. Um, but what it does show, I think, is an important uh, truth, an important aspect of the wider story.
5: On a related point, quite a few critics of the film have said that it downplays the involvement of black people in the abolition of slavery. Do you feel that that's a problem with the film?
6: Yes, I think it's a shame. I think it's a real shame that opportunities weren't taken one imagines that there must have been dramatic possibilities there uh, in at least seeing some imagery of um, fleeing uh, slaves or slaves um, taking um, their fate into their own hands we see a little bit of it there are some black soldiers portrayed actually quite a lot and very sympathetically um, including a striking scene at the very beginning of the film where a Black soldier protests to Lincoln about uh, the fact that um, African American soldiers were were paid less uh, than white soldiers and had to be commanded by white officers, uh, and Lincoln listens uh, sympathetically to these complaints. So, but, but black soldiers are present in the movie. Um, some of my colleagues, other historians, have have argued that these black characters are. Passive, I'm not sure I'd use the word passive. I don't think they're passive characters, but they are minor characters in the movies. no doubt about that. The movie is fundamentally about a bunch of white men, um, not in Lincoln's case, but in everybody else's case, permanently drinking um, whiskey or brandy or sherry or something, smoking cigars and and making making political decisions. That's what the movie is fundamentally about.
5: But you don't feel it, it should be totally denigrated because of this omission?
6: Personally, I don't. I think the critics who want to see a film um, about African-American emancipation um, are wanting to see a different movie. I think that people should go see this film – and then I think they should pick up a history book about the American Civil War and they should read it. I think that should be the great value of this movie is that it should stimulate people's interest in these extraordinary events. I mean, this is an unbelievable revolution taking place here in the middle of the 19th century. You know, 600 plus, nearly 700,000 people killed in this war. It's by far the biggest war in the Western um, world between the end of the defeat of Napoleon and the outbreak of the First World War. Um, four, nearly four and a half million enslaved people Freed. There are incredible stories here, great human dramas, and the big questions of the 19th century about nation building, about liberalism, about freedom are all acted out here. Um, this movie, as as you said, covers only a few weeks. And it covers one episode and it covers, it focuses relentlessly on the character, the moral character um, of the man who in so many ways was at the center of these events in the United States, Abraham Lincoln. I don't think it purports to be, I mean, I obviously don't speak for uh, Stephen Spielberg, but I don't think it, it purports to be a big enough canvas to describe the whole of the American Civil War. So I would, just, I would just say to people, go and see this movie and then read a history book.
5: And I suppose this comes on to a more general point that's often made about films. Do you think it is important that these historical films try to be accurate or actually as forms of entertainment, does it not really matter?
6: Filmmakers do have a historical responsibility not to get every little detail right, not to make sure that all of the speech Um, All of the dialogue is um, footnoted and plausible and that people really were where they claimed to be at a certain moment because that kind of dramatic license is essential. I mean, this film has been criticized because Lincoln turned up at the haunt of some of the um, political heavies that uh, Secretary of State William Seward had hired from New York to scare up some votes and uh, it's been rightly pointed out that lincoln would never have lowered himself to appear in their tavern room and that's absolutely true but to me those kinds of things don't really matter because i think steven spielberg has by and large been true to what i do think is his basic responsibility as a maker of a historical film which is to get the most important historical um Point right, which is that it's the Lincoln that it conveys. And it is a film about Lincoln. It's not a film about the enslaved people as such. It's not a film about the Americans. It's a film about Lincoln. And I think it basically gets Lincoln right. Not in every detail, but what it gets right about Lincoln is that at that moment, the beginning of 1865, when confronted with a real choice, about how important emancipation was going to be to the settlement of the war, he made a clear moral choice to push for this amendment to the constitution abolishing slavery. He didn't do it on his own. It's not a heroic movie of one man battling a a great institution on his own, but he himself – did have other options. They are very clearly dramatised, especially by the role played by Secretary of State William Seward. And he didn't take those options. He went down this route. That's true about Lincoln, it seems to me, in my judgement. Spielberg's got that right. And so I don't mind about the the, the smaller inaccuracies because he's got the, in that sense, he's got the big picture about Lincoln right.
5: If the fundamentals are there in place, the little details can be skirted over or altered for dramatic licence that's very
6: much my view i mean i you know i've obviously as you can imagine i've talked about this movie with my colleagues who are um civil war historians who are lincoln historians in the united states uh, as well as in this country and and uh, many of them are quite critical of the film for one reason or another. Some of them said that they couldn't really enjoy it because they were too um, preoccupied with spotting inaccuracies. I I have to say, that was not at all my experience. I was so mesmerized, above all by the performance of Daniel Day-Lewis, that I was able to suspend my historical judgment during the time i was watching it and afterwards i came out and i reflected on it and i noted down some of the moments where the film was clearly departed from historical reality but i think you're right i think that though they weren't departed from historical reality that were big enough to uh fundamentally um spoil the film um you know as as we were saying a a moment ago one important criticism of the film could well be um that it's only concentrating on one small aspect of the story of emancipation. And perhaps those who um, go to the movie knowing nothing nothing at all previously about this historical subject may um, come out believing that the slaves in the United States were emancipated only because of the decision of this one man, Abraham Lincoln. If people come out of the movie thinking that, then I'm depressed. Um, they, They shouldn't think that. That's not the reality. Uh, and in fairness, I don't think that would be what Steven Spielberg would intend people to think. There are enough glimpses here and there in the film of the, of the wider picture. He Possibly hasn't done that as, 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 as well as he could. But that's a criticism about what isn't in the film rather than a criticism about um, what he
5: Would you say that this is the best film yet made about the American Civil War era? Goodness
6: me, there have been so many films made about the American Civil War era. It's certainly the film that I have seen in the, uh, that's been made, you know, in the, I don't know, since the Second World War or so, that I have enjoyed most, and that I think has been most responsive, most reflective of modern scholarship. Um, I think it's a tremendous drama. Um, You know, whether it's, you know, if if you're asking me about a category of Civil War movies, I suppose you're also talking about Um, Movies like uh, Cold Mountain, which are on a very different Uh, about a very different subject and are entirely fictionalized, but also get at some important truth. I think it's a great movie about American politics, actually, not just about the American Civil War, about the American political process, about how the president relates to Congress, about how political principle relates to pragmatism, about how you have to use the low arts of politics in order sometimes to achieve noble ends. Um, I think it's a great movie on, on that level. Actually, so I, I probably compare this movie to other movies about American politics rather than to the much broader category of films about the uh, Civil War.
5: That was Adam Smith, a senior lecturer in the history department at UCL. Adam is the author of The American Civil War, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2007. Lincoln will be released in the UK on the 25th of January. Just before we go, I'd like to briefly remind you about an exciting event we've got coming up. On Monday the 25th of March at the British Academy in London, historians Emma Griffin and Maxine Berg will be debating the impact of the Industrial Revolution on both workers and consumers. It will be a great opportunity to hear two top historians and you'll also get the chance to meet them both afterwards and to purchase signed copies of their books. For more details and for tickets, please head to historyextra.com forward slash lectures. And that's about all for this episode. Why not tell us what you thought of it by getting in touch on email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter at historyextra, or on Facebook forward slash historyextra. Next time we'll be talking about a controversial moment in the history of the European Union. Do join us for that. History Extra Weekly podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.